How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome back to Women vs. Hollywood, the podcast that explores the fall and rise of women in film. I'm your host, Helen O'Hara, and I am not a woman in Hollywood, although sometimes when the weather's like it is in the UK, I really wish I were. I'm also a film journalist and writer of the book Women vs. Hollywood. Yes, the same name as the podcast because I have no imagination at all. So in this episode, we're going to be looking at Hollywood's silent era, that very early period from about 1895 until about 1928, technically, when the silent era ended, and a time when you would think that Hollywood was really in the dark ages, when female representation was nowhere like as advanced as it is now, except, surprise, they were doing much better than us in some respects. So I'm going to take a look at the huge variety of women who worked across the silent movies in the early 20th century, the reasons why they got so much success compared to the women who came after them, and why they were pushed out in favour of their male peers. To help me through this, since I know nothing, I'm going to be joined by three guests. So first of all, we have Rada Vatsal, who's a novelist and writer who specialises in early film. She's co-editor of the fantastic Women Film Pioneers Project at Columbia University, which catalogues women's contribution to cinema in the early days. We'll also hear from Pamela Hutchinson, who's a friend of mine, who's a film critic and a historian, and edits the film website Silent London, as well as contributing regularly to The Guardian and Sight and Sound and writing her own books. But first, we're going to hear from film historian Shelley Stamp. She is Professor of Film and Digital Media at University of California, Santa Cruz, and is a leading expert on women and early film culture. She spoke to me about the importance of studying the history of women in Hollywood. It's incredibly frustrating to me that so few people know about the number of women who were directing in the silent era, the number of women who were prominent screenwriters in the silent era. I feel like if more people knew this history, it would really change the way we think about the present and the way we think about the subsequent history, because this has been done before. We're not doing something new uh, in trying to get more women in positions of creative control. We're really just going back to where we were 100 plus years ago. And so that's frustrating that that nobody knows that. Right um, Now, in terms of particular women, I mean, first of all, I would say 
it's really important that everybody understands the breadth and depth of women directing in the silent era. I mean, it's it's fantastic to highlight particular women with particular strength, but I think it's really important to understand that there were many, many women directing. So, you know, a studio like Universal released hundreds of films directed by women in the 1910s. And there were women working in Hollywood. There were women working in studios outside of Hollywood. Uh, Zora Neale Hurston is, is making ethnographic films of black communities in Florida. There's women making comedies. There's women making feature films. There's women making documentary ethnographic films. There's women making serials. I mean, the, the breadth and depth of what women are doing is, is incredible in the silent era, and that really needs to be recognized. Uh, now, if you're going to ask about particular filmmakers, of course, I'm going to say Lois Weber, because I, I have a particular place in my heart for her, but also because she was one of the most prominent directors in early Hollywood, period, full stop. She's, she's often called, you know, one of the most important early female filmmakers. And that's great. We need to recognize her gender. It's an important part of who she was and how she worked and the, the films she made. But it puts her in a side category. She's one of the most important early filmmakers, period. And we really need to recognize that. And I could go on forever about her. Uh, what I particularly, I mean, let me just, let me just say maybe two things about her. One thing is that she really tackled key social issues in the U.S. in this period. So the fight to legalize contraception, um, the fight to abolish capital punishment, uh, drug abuse, poverty, really important and controversial issues that were difficult for people to talk about. And she made popular narrative films about them. And in virtually all of her films, there are female protagonists. It's women's stories and women's experience and women driving social change that are at the heart of her films. And so those are maybe two of the many things that I love about her. So like Shelley Stamp, Radha Vatsal is very passionate about making sure that women are remembered for their contributions to early cinema. She told me about her work on the Women Film Pioneers Project, a digital resource that publishes original scholarship about the hundreds of women who worked behind the scenes during the silent era. And believe me, people, if you haven't visited it yet, you're going to have the best time falling down one of the deepest internet wormholes. Enjoy. Yeah, so the Women's Film Pioneers Project started in the 90s at Duke University, and there was some amount of research coming out to suggest that women had made huge contributions to the early film industry, to silent film. And so Anthony Slide is one of the, he had one of the earliest books where he talked about women filmmakers of the silent era. And then at Duke with Jane Gaines, she sort of started collecting the research that had come out of the work of other scholars or that people were just picking up. And I was a graduate student at that time and I became involved. And I was just so fascinated by the fact that women had made such a huge impact in the film industry in like numbers and ways that we were just not seeing like a hundred years later. And I was just quite amazed by it. And it was my first, I think, realization that history doesn't just move on a smooth upward path. There are many dips and we don't really understand or sometimes we don't know that people had maybe achieved a lot in a certain era and that we've actually in some ways taken steps back since then. So at Duke, the project sort of grew and then 
we were going to make it into a book, but then we realized that there kept on being more and more information. And so it didn't make sense to do it in a book that would need to be updated all the time. So now it lives online as, as a project. And I'm, I'm really proud of the way it's turned out with the kind of access to primary resources. And you can really see it's like these thumbnail accounts of different women pioneers, but you can really see the primary materials that um, academics and independent scholars use to find out more about women uh, in that period. Are there any women who particularly stand out to you from that period? Do you have sort of favorites that you've worked on? I mean, they just all to me stand out for the kind of exciting work that they were doing. So for instance, there was a woman who's Canadian, who's not so well known, Nell Shipman. She had like a whole kind of stable of animals and she made these films on location in, you know, in the, I think in the Canadian Arctic with like dogs and sleds and and she directed these films and she acted in these films and these were like films shot out in nature with wild animals and she made these films so i think that's fascinating there's another woman i worked on her name is madeline brandeis she was divorced she moved to california with her daughter and she started making films for children and she made a film with an all child cast and then there's people who are very I mean, relatively speaking, very well known, like Alice Guy Blanchet, who kind of tick off all our boxes of what uh, uh, a great filmmaker should look like. She started, her career started right when film started, and she worked as a secretary for Gaumont. At that time, they were trying to sell the film cameras, the equipment. They were focused on selling equipment. And she said, well, you know, let's have some films to go with this equipment great idea. And then she shot what turned out to be one of the earliest sort of fiction films, which is this film called Cabbage Fairy. And then she went on to make, you know, hundreds of other films and she moved to the US and she actually had her own studio space, not just her name, but a space in New Jersey where she, you know, made hundreds of films. So, so what's fascinating to me is kind of the range and variety of women in the industry. You mentioned the female action stars there, and I know that's one of your sort of areas of expertise, but it, it's really fascinating to me in particular because, you know, we, we keep being told that women don't like action movies today and that that's a man's game. And we're only just beginning to really push back against that and really get some great female action leads. But they existed 100 years ago, right? Yeah, exactly. There were, and, and it was not just one or two women doing these movies. So um, I've written about this and it's um, the film scholar Ben Singer estimates that there were 60 different action serials wow. with women leads from about 1912 to 1920 for a total of 800 episodes. But so if you think 60 different films, there must have been at least, even if there were some number of overlaps with the actresses doing stuff, there must have been several dozen women stars in these action roles. And um, the women were the stars. They carried the films, their character names or their names. So like uh, Hazards of Helen, which is about uh, uh, a brave woman telegraph, railway telegraph operator. The actress who played a star in that is called, was Helen Holmes. And then the series, I think they made over a hundred episodes and then she was replaced by Helen Gibson. But so either their names were like prominently featured and they were the, they were the leads and they did their own stunts and many of them were quite dangerous, but also like in, in Hazards of Helen, Helen fights on top of a moving train with the baddies. Despite the fact that there were many successful women, both in front of and behind the camera in the silent era, 
we still don't see a healthy gender balance in today's film industry. So film critic and historian Pamela Hutchinson spoke to me about attitudes to female filmmakers in early Hollywood and how they compare to the present day. Yeah, the thing that's really depressing is that people, when there were women making films, Lois Weber, Dorothy Davenport, Reed, Cleo Madison, all these great names, they were having the conversations in the magazines and newspapers, they were having the debate about whether women could direct films. And, you know, these days, I think people would be rather sort of embarrassed to say it out loud. Why isn't the gender parity in the Cannes competition? Why isn't the gender parity at the Oscars? You know, we've just doubled the number of women to win the Best Director Oscar by adding one. This is not impressive, you know? You know, no one is saying, I don't think women make good films or can make films, but we're acting as if we think that way. And so it's quite interesting to see people having these blunt conversations in the silent era. And, you know, women like Lois Weber and Cleo Madison were saying, oh, I'm sure people will get over this. Well, they didn't. They really didn't. I always like to talk about um, Lillian Gish, who was a great actress who worked with Griffith, and he left her in charge of the studio and said, make a film. And she made this film and it got quite mixed reviews. It's lost, so we don't know, you know, whether it's any good or not. She said, because she was a bit embarrassed about it, she said, DW Griffiths was nice about it, but it can't have been any good. And she said, this basically proves women can't make films. And that quote is used a lot. Later in life, she said, I was quite proud of the film. And she talks about how she really wanted to make a film with an entirely female crew. She hired Dorothy Parker to write the intertitles, which was a genius, her first, you know, Hollywood commission. And so no one really talks about that side of it. Everyone's really keen to find evidence that backs up this imbalance that we have now to make it sound like it's natural for there not to be so many women directing films. It's not natural at all. Miss Lillian as D.W. Griffith used to call her, is the youngest human being in the theater tonight. If youth be measured by zest, enthusiasm, and sheer physical strength, this beautiful woman, so frail and pink and so overwhelmingly feminine, has endured as a working artist from the birth of the movies to their transfiguration. Come and get your long overdue Oscar, Miss Gish. Miss Lillian Gish. Miss Lillian Lillian. I'm speechless. And there are only two words that I can say for my beloved sister and myself for this warm tribute from all my friends and all of you of the Academy. Thank you. So that was Mervyn Douglas presenting an honorary Oscar to silent film star Lillian Gish in 1971. Unsurprisingly, many of the silent movie stars we remember today, like Gish, were white. But people of colour made important contributions to silent film too. Radha Vatsal spoke to me about her experience of researching filmmakers of colour in the early 20th century and some of the difficulties involved. What I found in doing this work is that all you have to do is look and you will find people who you didn't think were making films. You'll find that they were making films. And often you can't tell by names. You know, if all you have is a name and no photograph, no image, you, you, don't, you don't know what the ethnicity of a person is. And uh, the other thing also that like, certainly in the early, like first 10 years, like till 1910, 1912, the title sequences, first of all, we don't even have that many title sequences from those days. And 
they weren't so fixated on giving credits, like they just didn't have credits. So the film would be identified by the name of the company, not by the name of the director. And you're certainly not like putting the actor's names or anybody else's names. So, so you have this whole period where we're, where we're going back and trying to figure out who was involved in the making of these films. I have no doubt that there were women uh, and people of color making films at that time. I think we really just have to put in the extra effort to look for them. And I think like what happens is if you don't believe that they were there, then you simply don't see them. I wrote an article about a documentary, a fantastic film that was made, I think in the 80s or 90s, but it's called Family Album by a filmmaker called Alan Berliner. And he pieces together home movie footage from the 20s to the 60s to create this American family album. It's such an amazing film because it's all found footage and all found sound. And this entire film, there may be just a few clips with Black families in there. Otherwise, all the families are white. And I think at the time, and when he made the film, and even now, like, you know, your instinct would be to think that, oh, families of color didn't have access to the equipment to, to, to shoot their own home movies. Well, that turns out not to be correct. They did. And it's just that those, that footage is harder to find. It's not often cataloged. And, and I think there's a whole new generation of kind of archivists and scholars who are working on bringing this material to light. Hi everybody, my name's Helen. And I'm Kobe. And we're from Flix Watcher, a podcast in the strip media family. We are a movie podcast and we review films that are just on Netflix in the UK. So if you've ever struggled to find a film on Netflix to watch, we're the podcast for you. We have guests on from other podcasts, big and small, just like these guys that you listen to now. They choose the films and we rate them and discuss them with our unique scoring system. You can find Flix Watcher on any podcast app by searching Flix Watcher. That's F-L-I-X Watcher. And if you want more information about any of the other podcasts in the Strip Media family, just visit www.strips.media to find out more. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So one of the women of colour who made her mark in the early film industry, outside Hollywood, was Marion E. Wong. She set up the Mandarin Film Company in Oakland, California, and made a film called The Curse of the Quan Guang, casting herself as the villain and her family as the protagonists. However, it was turned down from wide distribution, and the film remains partially lost. African-American filmmakers, Tressie Souders and Maria P. Williams, both directed films that are now lost. Souders directed 1922's A Woman's Error 
and Williams made 1923's The Flames of Wrath. We know that Williams was a cinema manager and a social campaigner, and she seems to have returned to those roles after her time as a director. But we also know that Suders, for example, moved to Hollywood sometime before 1936, so she may have tried to get her big break in Tinseltown and come up against a wall of racism. The fact is that black actors in Hollywood at that time were largely confined to roles playing servants, and directing for them was outside of the question in the studio system. African-American cinema did develop parallel to Hollywood, but as far as we know, none of its major directors or producers were women. Still, notable characters did emerge. For example, the black LA-raised actress Anita Thompson, who starred in By Right of Birth in 1921. That film tried to combat the horrific success of D.W. Griffith's massively racist Birth of a Nation by portraying black characters in a far more positive light. In spite of racism and sexism, women in the silent era were able to make their voices heard. But why was it that the early film industry was more open to female filmmakers than it would be later on? I asked Shelley Stamp about the reasons women were able to get involved with filmmaking in those early years. There's a particular set of circumstances in early film history in the US that give opportunities to a lot of people. So first, film becomes popular very fast and becomes the top commercial entertainment form in the US very quickly in the early 1910s, even before that, right? So there's a tremendous need for film product, right? Everybody's going to the movies. Movie theaters show multiple films a day. They change their programs sometimes two and three times a week. So there's a tremendous demand for films. That creates opportunity for a lot of people. It creates opportunity for women. There's an explosion of black filmmakers in this era as well, right? Same thing. There's a need for film products. So that's reason number one, probably the most important reason. Number two is that early filmmaking was less rigidly defined by roles. So it was much easier than it would become to move from being a writer to an actor to a director or some combination of those roles. They were very, very fluid. And credits weren't codified. Even the notion of a director comes in much later really thin women start to work, right? And so many women who are acting start writing the scenarios for the films they're in and then start telling people where the camera should go. And and, and that's the beginning of directing, right? So that fluidity of roles, that sort of artisanal aspect of early filmmaking really, again, creates opportunity. And then I would also say that For women in particular, in the 1910s, women are being taken seriously, particularly white middle class women are being taken seriously as sort of arbiters of taste. And as cinema becomes more popular, it also becomes more controversial. And there is a desire to have, again, in particular, white middle class women working behind the scenes as a kind of guarantor of taste, right? That the the films are, are upstanding and respectable because there are women working behind the scenes, right? So I think that combination of things creates incredible opportunity for for women that they wouldn't really have again for a long, long time, if ever. For more than three generations of moviegoers, this is the face, the face of the most popular woman in the world. 
This is the face of Mary Pickford. She had made more than 160 films before Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm, a classic that established her forever as America's sweetheart. Mary, I present this to you with great pride and with the love and admiration of the whole Academy. That's wonderful. You made me very, very happy. And thank you. Well, it's nice to see another, isn't it? It, it certainly is. He hasn't changed very much in all this time, has he? Well, I hope not. No, he hasn't. <laughs> he hasn't. There have been a lot of him made, and a lot of marvelous actors and actresses have won him. And it, it, it's only proper that finally he's come back to you again. Well, it's very nice to be able to thank them all, and especially you. Thank you. And you, for all you've contributed to this great industry of ours. I shall treasure it always. So that was Gene Kelly and producer Walter Murch presenting an honorary Oscar to silent film icon Mary Pickford at the 1976 Oscars ceremony. She was the first star of any gender to earn $500 a week, and by 1916 she earned as much as $10,000 a week. She was also the co-founder of United Artists in 1919, along with Charlie Chaplin, D.W. Griffiths, and her then-husband-to-be, Douglas Fairbanks. But as time went on, powerful women like Mary Pickford would become few and far between in Hollywood, because the studio era began to push female filmmakers to the sidelines. Pamela Hutchinson spoke to me about the end of that early female-friendly period, and what that meant for women in the industry, beginning with Lois Weber. With someone like Lois Weber, she moved into the independent space. She had her own studio. She had a, a distribution contract with big studios, but she was an independent filmmaker. And that's when you get to be precarious. The sort of squeezing out of women goes hand in hand with the rise of the studio system, you know, and if you are, you're either in or you're out. And we're very much in that situation now. If you're an independent filmmaker in the silent era, you are incredibly precarious. And so you have women like Lois Weber was in that position, women like Nell Shipman, who was making wonderful films really exciting films and she couldn't get distribution contracts for them. But of course, you can also say that this is what happened with African-American cinema in that era. You know, that was all independent productions, people like Oscar Michaud, who, if anyone had given him a budget, if anyone hadn't tried to cut every film that he ever put out, might be a really well-known filmmaker. And, you know, in the end, you sort of have this sort of shadow industry. So it's very rare that anyone was going to come up through a studio. What does happen towards the end of the silent era is Dorothy Arzner happens, which is always a good thing. Uh, and she started out as a typist. I tell you what, I mean, typing is the way to go. Uh, went into scenario writing and editing, went into editing films. People thought that women would be good at editing films because they had delicate little fingers and they were good at sewing. 
Um, <laughs> That's so true. Well, you know, so true. It's still the case that editors are often women, and some women with amazingly long careers, because she was able to do something intelligent with editing, they gave her a shot. And so she was the only woman working at a studio as a director by the end of the silent era. And we know that she went on into the 30s and just into the 40s making films, you know, and it was a lonely place to be. She wasn't the only one, but it was a lonely place to be. But she was only able to do that because she was fully within the system at that point. And she could afford to leave the system when she chose. What common threads do you see between the silent era and today? Do you, you know, because a lot of the time, especially when you look at something like directors, of course, we see direct comparisons almost in terms of percentages have not changed that much, I think. You know, elsewhere as well, in terms of roles, in terms of, you know, the kind of stuff women are doing. Does it feel like we've come a long way in the last hundred years? I mean, it feels like we're sort of slowly building our way back up. You know, Universal, after they severed ties with Lois Weber in the 20s, they did not produce a single film directed by a woman until Amy Heckerling made Fast Times at Ridgemont High. That's decades and decades and decades just to get to the point where they've got a female director on their books. I think we're still in the position where the further away you get from the camera, the more likely you are to be a woman. So if you're a critic or a screenwriter, it's a little bit easier, but we're still not recognising those people. I think it was interesting at the Oscars this year that Emerald Fennell won the best original screenplay, and there's only a few women have won that Oscar. When you consider the absolute you know, vast numbers of women writing screenplays, it, it makes no sense. So we're not honouring the women that we have, you know? And I think... One of the things I would say is that you can see a lot of really interesting filmmaking, filmmaking that is super exciting, that is not within the Hollywood space. Even someone like Chloe Zhao, you know, that's not that's not working a Hollywood methods, you know. Um, and in the silent era, outside of the studio system, you have some of the most incredibly vital filmmaking, Germaine Dulac, or someone like Lottie Reininger, who literally found a way that you could make films by yourself at a table and you didn't need a studio, you know, and yet, there is nothing more iconic, nothing more instantly recognisable than a Lottie Reininger cut-out fairy tale film. So we do find women making films that maybe the studios wouldn't make or couldn't make, but they're really exciting. So stay tuned for our episode where we'll be discussing the studio era in more depth. We'll take a look at the reasons why female filmmakers were pushed out of the mainstream film industry and how the studio system treated its female stars. Spoiler, it ain't good. There are definitely parallels to be drawn between the Hollywood of the silent era and the Hollywood of today. So I asked Radovatsal if there are any lessons we can learn from the silent era and how we can make the film industry better for women now. In the silent era, like access to film and equipment, like in the early years and the ability to make a film was like, not readily available, but wasn't expensive. It wasn't hard. And I think that's a set of conditions that we're seeing again now that it's not that anybody in a sense can make movies. And I think the problem always comes up when it becomes a problem of money and how do we kind of deal with that and what compromises are people willing to make in order to say like, oh, I want to get this job that pays me more or to make this type of film that that is going to cost more. And I think that that's kind of a balancing act as a society that we have to just decide what we value. And do we want to see more films that are made for $50,000 and fewer films that are made for how many ever 
millions of dollars. I mean, I do think it has just a lot to do with money and our attitude towards it and who gets to have some of it, you know? And and so one of the things that I see and I just like now just really strikes me is like I was just watching the Friends reunion recently and I was like, wow, that show was really white. So it had six white characters, plus all their friends are white, plus their family is white. And it's not just that the representation then becomes white. I was just thinking, oh my gosh. So think of all the actors of color who have like then been denied the opportunity to make even a little bit of money, a little bit of a living in this world. How do we not make that mistake is I think, yeah, we give people opportunities and we try, like, I think casting is, uh, you know, whether it's casting or giving people opportunities to make films, it's not just about representation, which is really important. But I actually think that the financial aspect of it is important, too, because I think people who make movies, people who write, people who act in movies, like if you're not earning any money, if because of the color of your skin, you only have access to 5% of the roles then your ability to stay in the industry, to contribute, all is dramatically lessened. And for me, the ability to stay, to persevere, to like be able to earn enough so that you can keep doing it year after year, that's what we need to look at. So I hope that's been entertaining and please do remember that if you're interested in any of the films that we've talked about today or any of the filmmakers, much of their work is actually up on YouTube. You don't have to look far to see it and you can give yourself basically a grounding in silent film history with no more than a few clicks of the mouse. I particularly recommend looking up some Lois Weber films. She was a fantastic, fantastic director. And thank you so much to my guests today, because as I say, I am not a silent film scholar and it is such a joy to talk to people who really are. So a million thanks to Shelley Stamp, to Radovatsal and to Pamela Hutchinson. You can follow the links in the show notes to find out more about them and all of their work. And I really, really recommend that you read some of their writing because they've done some fantastic, fantastic research into this era. So we've almost come to the end of this episode of Women vs. Hollywood. But before you go, here's Radha and Pamela giving their recommendations for underrated films by women that you may have missed. And if you're wondering where Shelley is, you can hear her recommendation in our upcoming episode on the studio era. So here's Radha. But I would say go on the Women Film Pioneers website, choose any one of those women whose stories sound interesting to you. And if you Google their name or there may be a link on the website, you'll see a clip of what they've made. And I think what's just astounding is is the variety of films that are out there. To me, that's that's what's so exciting. Rada is absolutely right to recommend the whole of the Women Film Pioneers Project website because it is the kind of thing that you can you know, dive into and go down a wormhole and lose yourself for hours. But just in case you don't know where to start, let me suggest a couple of names that you could look up. Helen Holmes, as in Sherlock with an L in it, uh, is one of the action starlets of the 1910s. She starred in a long-running stunt-driven serial called The Hazards of Helen, which is obviously a personal favourite of mine. And she's fantastic. And it's worth reading her biography, for example, on the site, because it gives you an idea of just what kind of crazy stuff she got up to in those days. Another person to maybe look up is someone like Tsuru Aoki. Uh, she was a massive star of the early silent era. She was Japanese. She worked in Japan as well as in the US and she was married to one of the massive heartthrobs of the era. So if you'd like to know more about her, again, have a look on the Women Film Pioneers Project website. 
And here is Pamela. Well, this is too easy for me because pretty much every silent film is a little bit underrated. And a little bit unseen, usually. And a little bit unseen. But I, I champion this one film quite a lot and I'm, I know you've seen it. But whenever I show it to someone who's not seen it before, they are blown away and you can find it online. Uh, a film called Suspense and it's by Lois Weber and it is a 10 minute thriller from 1913. So basically from the year that Hollywood was invented, it is a home invasion thriller which has such radical and innovative techniques and it puts the women's, woman's experience at the heart of the film and the woman itself who is in the house uh, is Lois Weber. So we're talking about multitasking, we're talking about reinventing a form that had only just been established, the sort of race to the rescue thriller. It's super exciting and if you watch that and you don't want to watch anything else by Lois Weber, I would probably uh, take your temperature because you might be feeling a little ill. And if you'd like to check those out, you can find links to the Women Film Pioneers Project and to Suspense by Lois Weber in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening to Women vs. Hollywood. I've been your host, Helen O'Hara, and you can find my book, Women vs. Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film, anywhere that books are sold in the UK and very soon in the US from the start of November. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. It really does help. And to find us on social media, use the hashtag Women vs. Hollywood. This podcast is produced by Stripped Media with our executive producers Kobe Omanaka and Ella Watts and our producer Maddie Searle. The podcast artwork is by Steve Laird. Thanks for listening. See you next time. You just heard a Stripped Media production. 